Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. When you think about studies on animal coloration, a few systems may spring to mind. Trinidadian guppies, CPL ant snails, mice, and, of course, Heliconius butterflies. Simply put, Heliconius butterflies are beautiful. They are delicate, brightly patterned, and their larvae eat passionflower vines. All round, they are visually stunning. But they're also evolutionarily fascinating, as species within the genus show a great deal of colour pattern diversity, and mimicry abounds between species. Recently, a new paper was published in Heredity looking at the genetic basis of this colour pattern diversity, titled The Genetic Architecture of Adaptation, Convergence in Pleiotropy and Heliconius Wing Pattern Evolution. I spoke to lead author Dr. Jake Morris to learn more about this work and find out what it tells us about the evolution of animal coloration. So, who are you? I'm Jake Morris, author of paper we're going to be talking about today. And this I did as part of my work as a PhD student, and I'm now working in science as a postdoc at UCL. So this paper is focused in on Heliconius butterflies, which have become a bit of a model system for studying colour pattern evolution. So maybe to start off, you could just describe what these butterflies look like and explain why they're so interesting. Yeah, of course. So I guess the first thing that one notices when looking at a Heliconius butterfly is it's rather dramatic colour pattern. Nearly all of these species have sort of a black background and these very bold red and yellow patterns, which sort of shout out, I'm here, look at me. But they're also, they shout out a sort of a warning signal of I'm dangerous, don't eat me. So that's one of the most sort of noticeable things about these butterflies. And one of the reasons why they're so interesting is that within a single species, you can have many, many different color patterns. And in different geographic regions, you'll find a different color pattern. And one of the other really fascinating things is that in each geographic area we might go to, you'll be able to catch multiple different species which all have the same color pattern. And so there's also this convergence on color patterns as well as this diversity. And they have this convergence because of mimicry, uh, the malarian mimics. And so they're all toxic. And by sharing the same color patterns, they share the costs of teaching predators that they're toxic and that they should not be eaten. Perfect. I mean, color patterns and toxicity is kind of, I guess, biologist bait. I mean, they are fantastic (laughs) systems to study. Yeah, and I mean, they've been sort of confusing and fascinating people for, well, for over 100 years. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, they are wonderful creatures. And the interesting thing that you say there is that, you know, this research on them started over 100 years ago. So what was it specifically that you were hoping to add to this body of knowledge? Yeah, so there's already quite a bit known about the sort of genetic basis of coloration in these butterflies. There's a few major genes which have been looked at, optics, which controls sort of major differences in red patterning, cortex, which controls major differences in yellow patterning, and sort of wintay that controls changes in melanism. We know what some of these genes do in Heliconius malpomonae, species we were looking at. But what we wanted to get at was also some of the more subtle quantitative variation, such as changes in band shape, changes in pigmentation, and the genetics of the colour patterns that were less well explored. 
Perfect. And were you studying them in the wild? Were you crossing them in a lab situation? Um, yeah, so it's the second of it. So we collected them in the wild and then crossed them in our greenhouses and then, you know, sequenced butterfly families, um, which were, you know, hybrids or backcross individuals from these two different geographic subspecies that we had collected in the wild. Nice. And are they particularly easy to breed in captivity? Uh, they are until they get disease, and then they're very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then everything dies. <laughs> it is the bane of all Heliconius biologists. And you have to rear a lot of food plants. And obviously, these are tropical butterflies. So keeping them in Yorkshire requires <laughs> some fine-tuning. <laughs> I can imagine. So, I mean, what you're setting up there, it sounds like a really fantastic species to study, but a really difficult one to actually conduct these studies on. So I guess we should maybe talk about why it was worth doing, because there's an incredible amount of work in this paper. If we kind of take it in a couple of different stages, one of the things you're looking at was the genetic basis of this phenotype called a broken band pattern. What mm -hmm. was it you were finding in terms of the genetic basis of this? Yeah, so in Heliconius errato, which is the main mimic of Heliconius malpombe, we actually know uh, what controls band pattern, and we know it was a gene called Wintae. And people had looked at gene expression of Wintae in other species and found that it was controlling color pattern changes in that part of the forewing. But no one had actually looked at it in Heliconis malpomene, and certainly not using QTL analysis. And so we really wanted to confirm that it was also Wintae controlling that color pattern change in Heliconius malpomene. And so we conduct crosses with our Guyanese species, which has broken band pattern, with another subspecies from Peru, which does not have it, Heliconius malpomene glaucae. And by doing these crosses, we were able to confirm that it is indeed Wintae that's controlling that pattern. So yeah, this one specific gene you found is controlling this color pattern. Is having one gene of major effect pretty common for this? I think a lot of people nowadays would probably assume that there'd be multiple genes, multiple pathways involved in generating these kind of phenotypes. So Wintay is the patterning gene, which is telling, I guess, a suite of downstream pigmentation genes, where to lay that pigmentation, essentially. And well, there's conflicting results from other taxa. Sometimes it is, you know, many different genes controlling um, color pattern. But in other species, one does find it's often a major gene that controls the majority of that variation. And in Heliconius, we did already know that on the whole, the majority of these big sort of switches of on-off of the pattern are controlled by these major switch genes, such as Wente. Yeah, okay, that's uh, it is interesting. And you were also looking at another sort of major phenotypic trait as well, which was this red-orange patterning on the wings. Were you finding something similar there? Was it also a single gene that was involved? With the red-orange pigmentation, I guess it's a different kind of trait. So broken band is either a trait that you have or you don't have uh, on the whole. So it's much more of a binary trait, whereas red-orange pigmentation we found, obviously in the Guyanese subspecies, they had this red patterning. And those same pattern elements are orange in Peru. And so, I mean, we had no idea whether this would be a single switch gene or multiple different genes. And what we found was we've certainly found one gene which stood out, or at least one locus which stands out, and a good candidate gene in that region called ventral veins lacking, which we think explains at least the majority of this red-orange pigmentation. However, having said that, we did also find evidence that there are other genes also affecting red-orange pigmentation. 
and it is much more of a quantitative trait. Okay, excellent. So a much more sort of complicated trait genetically than the broken band pattern. Yeah, I would say so. No, that's interesting. And I guess one thing that I'm kind of wondering, and maybe some people listening will as well, is that you've kind of mentioned a couple of times that these butterflies, one of your populations is from Guyana, the other one is from, was it Peru? Uh, yeah, Peru. Yeah. So they I are... should actually correct that. When I say Guyanese, I'm actually talking about the Guyana sort of shield. Actually, we collected ours in Suriname, although they are also found in Guyana. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they are quite geographically disparate. So I wonder if there is an element of genetic drift underlying some of these color patterns or whether or not you think it's an adaptive trait that's sort of actively evolving. I think you're almost certainly right. But clearly these traits are under strong selection. If you are in a certain geographic area and you don't have the correct pattern, you'll quite quickly be eaten. And people have done studies where they put out models of butterflies, uh, some which have the dominant pattern in that area and others which don't. Uh, and they find that there's far more predation on those models of butterflies but don't have the correct pattern. So there is a strong selection against hybrids. And that's why in general, where two patterns meet, we find quite narrow hybrid zones because on either side, there's really strong selection against these hybrids. However, why all these species shouldn't just have one pattern across all of South America, which would be far simpler and would do the job? I guess is quite hard to answer. And there, I'm sure there are elements of drift that lead to this sort of variation within species. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the question that has driven all of this research on them for so long. I mean, it is genuinely fascinating. But um, I know that this paper also contained a lot more insights than just looking at these two phenotypic traits. So what were the other highlights of this work? Well, one of the things we did was we looked at a number of different quantitative traits. And one of the things we sort of found was seems to be evidence of sort of pleiotropy. So many of these major effect loci, which contain these major effect genes, also seem to have smaller modifier roles in other traits that aren't their sort of primary trait, which is, I think, quite fascinating. And one of the other things we know and sort of also found was sort of this evidence of convergence. So this ventral veins lacking gene, which controlled red-orange pigmentation, um, also plays, for example, a pleiotropic role in band shape. And it also plays a role in controlling band shape in Heliconia serrata, the mimic. And this is why we think this gene is a candidate in this locus. And so there's convergence in pleiotropy. Okay, so it's a phenotypic and a genetic convergence. So it's the same genes that are being involved. Yeah, it's interesting. Conversion evolution is really cool. Yeah, I mean, having it at both levels as well is really fascinating. So I guess if we were to sort of sum this up, could you maybe sort of explain where this paper fits within the wider Heliconius literature and what it's contributing to our understanding of animal coloration more generally? Yeah, so in the Heliconius literature, I think this fits in quite nicely. It fills in a couple of holes that had been left. Firstly, uh, there had been work done on quantitative variation in color pattern, but it hadn't been done using sort of fine-scale genetic mapping. I think in Heliconius malpominae, at least, it had only been done at the chromosome level and only for, I think, sort of one or two traits. And so this is a good first look at getting into the more detailed quantitative variation. It also, for some of these major changes in color patterns, such as broken band phenotype, it answers what is our best candidate gene for controlling that. We knew it in other species, but now we also know it in Heliconius malformate, which is one of the most extensively studied of all of these species. I, I think another thing that perhaps Heliconius can show are that the genes controlling 
patterning aren't necessarily the same genes that control the pigmentation. And maybe quite frequently, there's more convergence out there than one might expect. Yeah, definitely an interesting thing to keep in mind for anybody studying color patterns in animals. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for being a part of the Heredity Podcast. It's a pleasure. That was Dr. Jake Morris, lead author in the recent Heredity paper, The Genetic Architecture of Adaptation, Convergence in Pleiotropy and Heliconius Wing Pattern Evolution. This paper fills in some really interesting gaps in our knowledge of heliconius color pattern genetics. And if you have the time, do go read the full paper, as it has some really nice figures showing the pattern differences they investigated. As always, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can learn more about the journal and how you can get your research published in it. Before we go, we just have time to hear about the latest Genetics Unzip podcast with Kat Arney. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we bring you a very special interview with leading geneticist Mary Claire King, whose work has spanned everything from comparing chimps and humans to finding the first breast cancer gene to reuniting families that have been torn apart. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You should really go and listen to this entire episode. You can find it on the podcast platform of your choice, or you can head straight to the website geneticsunzipped.com. Like Genetics Unzipped, Heredity is part of the Genetics Society. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter, that's at Heredity Journal. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.